There is no doubt about it. We have heard the phrase, it is scripture really, uh, being provided for us many times when someone quotes Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 and says, judge not, that you be not judged. And I understand and know, and we'll discuss it in the coming weeks on Sunday evening from the Sermon on the Mount, that oftentimes when that verse is used, it is not only used out of context, it's totally misapplied. But yet there is a sense in which we should be very careful in our judgments. That is because our judgments can always be, they can be nothing more really, but they can and will always be the judgments of only man's outward appearances. Things such as the way that they look, the way that they dress, the way that they carry themselves, and oftentimes, sometimes even, added to that maybe their speech and other things, but we can only judge the outward portions of man. Whereas God has the ability to see the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now that verse really is a springboard to go back into our text in James chapter 2. If you want to have your Bibles open there, go back into James chapter 2. We began this study on several sessions ago at least, whether it be two or three weeks. And we started there in verse 1 to say, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Just one more time I'll say it, that is a subject sentence seemingly for what is about to come at least in the first 13 some odd verses. Then the Bible goes on and says, for if there be one that come into your assembly, a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, sit thou here in this good place, and say unto the poor, uh, stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool, are ye not partial in yourselves? Watch the next phrases here. And are become judges of evil thoughts. Again, this is a parallel, really, to what is stated in Matthew chapter 7, so far as the types of judgments that are involved. These are outward judgments. These are judgments based upon appearance and not experience. They're not based upon getting to know someone's character, but yet looking on at their clothing. Then the Bible goes on to ask, after that rhetorical question says, hearken, my beloved brethren, that means stand and pay attention. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and the heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised, to them that love him. But, he says, in great contrast, you might add, ye have despised the poor. Do not the rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Verse seven, do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you were called. Now that's really about as far as we have gotten and we're going to backtrack just a little bit in that. Won't go all the way to the beginning of the text, but I do want to back up if you would uh, as far as at least verse 4, just to notate some things that I think we may have overlooked or we need to add or reintroduce. And that's the first idea is this. He asked that rhetorical question, are you not partial in yourselves? That is, it's coming from you. You can't blame anyone else. He says, and are you become judges, key word, of, he says, evil thoughts. Now that word judges right there literally means have you become critical judges. 
You know, we can pass judgment sometimes on people that we care about most likely or that we know or maybe that we love and we pass judgments on them that are rather favorable. For example, sometimes we see someone whom we're close to, maybe a spouse, maybe a child, a grandchild, whatever the case is, and we see them doing something. We know about what they're doing. We say, well, that's just not exactly right. That's not exactly appropriate. And we may not be looking at it from a sinful standard anyway, but that's not exactly the way I would do it or the way it ought to be done. But the way we would say it is we begin to then give them the benefit of the doubt. We begin to look to them and we're making a judgment and the judgment is that what they're doing is not necessarily appropriate, not necessarily in line with what I think. However, that's yet another way of doing this or that. Well, that's not, that is not the type of judgment here. This judgment, again, is not based upon anyone's character. It's based upon a man's clothing, particularly in the context. And so when he makes the statement here, he says, are you not then become critical Judges. Now, we've already pointed it out, and we'll develop it more in just a moment. In that day, basically, all of the church was being judged. The vast majority, and we'll see this in some scriptures in a few moments, were those who were poor people, those who were downtrodden, those who were of lesser state, financially at least, than the world around them. Matter of fact, the Roman government under which most of these people lived where they fail, would cause them to be that way. They oppressed them. They wanted them to be poor. They wanted them to be without means. And in their mind, the Romans thought, as they thought when they put Jesus on the cross, that in some way that would uh, cease this existence of this sect, as they would have called it. Well, first of all, it didn't work. The reasoning why it didn't work, we'll see as we go forward also, but he's asking this rhetorical question, are you not being critical judges. Then when he added that in verse 5 that we read across, he says, hearken my beloved brethren, hath not God, watch the phrase here, chosen, we talked about the matter of choice on Sunday morning, the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him. The thing I want to add to verse 5 here is to notate there were three or four characteristics that we broke this into. Those who are chosen in this world are those who are poor in this world, those, however, who are rich in faith, and those who are heirs of the kingdom. And the fourth characteristic was those that love him. Now, what exactly does that mean? Friends, I think, and you well know this, that we have misapplied or misappropriated too many times the word love. We take the word love today and we apply it to nearly, if not anything, that we have access to. For instance, some of my favorite foods, I oftentimes look to that and I say, well, I love that. Well, I don't love that in the way that this type of love is spoken of. Now, the word love here in the, in the context is it comes from the Greek language. You'll be familiar with because you hear this word used a lot. But the Greek word behind this is a derivative of the word agape. We may have heard of the Agape Adoption Service or the Agape Children's Home. What that means is I'm going to love you un or without condition. Now the idea here is then, do you or are these people whom he's speaking of, do they not notice that these are the people who have that type of love for God? Now I think about those favorite foods to turn this back over. Why I have favorite foods. And I might say to you, I tell you what, I really love pizza. That's a misapplying of this word. But here's the thing. You put black olives and anchovies and mushrooms on that pizza. I don't love that pizza. Do you see there are conditions? 
Now, the love here of which he speaks, and let's just reread the phrase there. I'm at the latter part of this verse. Verse 5, he says, and to them that love him. I'll give you a verse for the references in your margin there that you might add if it's not already there. It'll be one that you're very familiar with. John chapter 14 and verse 15. There Jesus used a very simplistic phrase, a very bold statement when he said, if, that's conditional there, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now I saw several of you mouthing the words as I said that. What? That's the truth though. As a matter of fact, the Greek language in that verse, John 14 and 15, literally says, if you love me, you will, W-I-L-L, keep my commandments. What does that mean then? Well, the flip side of that coin, which is the way I like to describe things sometimes, is to say Jesus says in the reverse, if you do not keep my commandments, you do not love me. We cry out, and I suppose the man that we keep referring to, this fictitious man who seemed to be religious, who believed himself to be religious, chapter 1, verses 26, this man would have said by mouth, I love God. But if in any part, and we'll mention this as we get to it in context, if in any part I fail to, especially when it's a choice to fail, not just ignorance, but when I fail to keep God's laws, I do not have God's love. So to put it in that perspective, then just to reread these qualifications, God, yes, he chose the poor of the world who are rich in faith, who are heirs to the promise of uh, that to, who are heirs to the promise and those who you could insert right here keep his commandments. Now I think I illustrated on several occasions ago that if you were in a classroom situation and a teacher came in at the beginning of the quarter maybe gave out a syllabus and said if you will do these things they list the assignments, the tests, the certain dates of those things if you will do these things you'll make an A but if you fail to do these things I already know some of you will fail. That teacher's not looking for anyone to fail, but through experience, they know some will. And the ones that they have, quote, chosen, if you want to say it that way, because someone could fold their arms and say, well, the teacher has already made a choice that she's going to fail half of this class, or he is, why she's done that based upon a standard. Right here, the standard is that we keep his commandments. Now, I just want to make sure we covered that a little bit more thoroughly. So we had under that heading there, verses five through seven, we were calling that under the respect of others. And that is that he is the one who respects others concerning the saved. There was a choice in verse five that God made. There were the children in verse five B that God would choose based upon his criteria. And then there is the charge, verse six. He says, but ye have despised the poor. Now, I can imagine just by knowing the character of men, including myself at times, if I'm too, quote, high and mighty or proud, I can imagine when people heard that, the ones who were the worst off in this sin said, no, I don't know who he's talking about. We get into a situation when someone begins to teach or begins to preach and point out certain sins, that the sins by which we are the most guilty of, if there's a level of guilt there, we tend to say, well, it, it must be that he's talking about brother so-and-so on the back. Must be that he's talking about sister so-and-so on the end of the row. It cannot, it, ought, it should not be me. 
And even then, sometimes I've been guilty of this. If we do find guilt, we still try to make ourselves feel less guilty than someone else. That's a parallel to what we'll mention later on from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through about verse 5 anyway. Judge not that you be not judged. Well, the problem in that context is that people were judging themselves based upon one thing and judging the whole world, everybody else that existed, on another standard. Now, the basic judgments they're making is concerning people who come into these assemblies. And I think we really ought to picture these best. I think that it is based upon something we're about to read. These people who are entering into these synagogues, that's the word assembly from verse 2, that are coming in these places, one group who's because of their riches in the worldly things are being lifted up because of the poorness of the worldly things are being put down. These are visitors to the assembly. These are not members of this given congregation. It applied here in this day. It would apply here in Weaver, Alabama or anywhere else. You say, well, how would you assume that? Well, just dropping down, we're coming back to it as we cross it better. But he says, verse 7, do not they blaspheme that worthy name, watch what he says now, by which ye are called. What's he saying there? He's saying that these people who are in the assemblies here, who are being put down, when you put them away as they are, you're blaspheming God's name. Seems as if those people here who are being oppressed or those who are just dropping by and whatever treatment they receive could be a big, big factor as to whether or not they drop by again. I've been associated with a congregation years ago, for example, that oftentimes, oftentimes was blessed with visitors. Very often. But what would typically happen, and, and believe you me, some of these visitors would be the kind that preachers or elders or whoever, any enthusiastic member, really got excited about. Because they would come in, you wouldn't recognize them, you wouldn't, as my mom would say, know them from Adam's house cat, but when they came in the door, you would introduce yourself, they would introduce themselves, and they would say, I am so-and-so, and this is my wife so-and-so, and these are our children, whatever the situation, and they would say, we are new to your community, and we're trying to find a place to worship. Now, if they're members of the church, they'll generally say, we're members of the church, but, but they weren't saying that necessarily. They're just trying to find a place. Well, you know that the church is right. You know that a faithful congregation, this one was, in many, many instances, was right. And so you also know in that town there were no other choices. So you wanted to get their attention. But here's what would happen too many times. There would be so few people who would speak to them who would show them kindness, and it didn't matter who they were, that they wouldn't come back that evening. They wouldn't come back the Wednesday to follow. They wouldn't be back the next week. And if you were able to get some contact information to contact them, they would have already found somewhere else to go. And if you could get them to talk very long, they would say, I just did not feel comfortable there. We know what that means was no warm welcome sometimes but then I also saw other instances where people would come into the town the same type of situation and immediately someone would already know oh that's going to be the new principal at the high school 
Oh, they had the red carpet rolled out. No. Right here in this passage, men are being mistreated for all the wrong reasons, if there were any right. Now, carrying on with that idea, he says, but ye have despised the poor. Then he asks this rhetorical question. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Now, rich men have been oppressing them in and around this time. Again, I believe this book to be written around A.D. 49. If it were written any time prior to A.D. 70, roughly, the destruction of Jerusalem, one of the greatest powers in power, these were a religious power that had taken in a part of the government, were called the Sadducees. Basically, it didn't matter who you were, if you weren't a Sadducee, they did not lift you up. That's a kind way of putting it. They put you down. And so really what James is saying unto them, there are some huppity-ups, there are some higher-up people here, that are mistreating or abusing the poor in this congregation. And James is pointing out to them, you've been done the same way and you didn't like it. Now with that said, let's go back to a thought that's really been encapsulated from verse 5 forward. The question at hand, it says God has chosen the poor of this world. Has he really done that? Has God seemingly chosen people, and that speaks of finances, we can't avoid it, wouldn't try to, but has he actually chosen the poor of the world to save? Well, it's not to the exclusion of the rich. It's not to the exclusion of the moderately rich either. But at the same time, in general, God chose the poor to save. Why? Because these people who are poor in monetary gain, he said in the next phrase of verse 5, were those who are rich in something much more important, faith. I want to put a few passages with, the, with this just for our memory's sake at least. Go with me over the book of Luke. When you get to Luke, go back to Luke chapter 1. We're going to read several things from Luke. Luke has much to say about it really. But go back with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1. And let's just read. We won't comment so much on this one yet. But let's read Luke 1 verse 51. Oh, say on down to about, uh, let's go through about verse 53. Luke 1 51, the Bible says this. He says, has showed strength with his arm, had scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Now I realize we're right in the middle of a context here. But look on to verse 52. And hath put down the mighty from their seats. Now, all this hath and he hath and that type thing, he is mercy, that goes all the way back up to speak about God. These are things that God has done. Now, rereading that verse 52, and have put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. Now, I hope you can put your finger or your marker right there. Turn back to the book of James. I've already said several times that what's spoken of in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, is a parallel, really, to what was said in James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. James chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 says, and let the brother of, watch that next phrase, low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but in the rich that he be made low. How in the world were those of low degree exalted? And question better than that, who, it, who was it that exalted those of low degree? God. 
That's Luke chapter 1 and verse 52. He hath put down the mighty, the rich, and then it went on to say, and he hath exalted them of low degree. Verse 53. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Now, are these financially rich people? Yes. By the way of a picture, they are. But they could have been as financially wealthy as anybody if they had had that parallel to James chapter 2, rich faith. If their faith had outweighed their bank accounts, or at least their mental thought about themselves, they would have never been in that position. Now with that, put another parallel with this. Go on over now to Luke chapter 4. That was Luke chapter 1. Look at Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. Reading something here about God, or at least part of the Godhead. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He had sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering the sight of the blind, and set liberty them that are bruised. Now who's speaking right here? Jesus. Jesus is basically speaking of himself and says, I was sent to preach the gospel to the poor. Another great parallel in this, Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the first about 12 verses speak of the, the what we call the Beatitudes, blessed is, blessed that. One of those phrases, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So the proof here is that Jesus Christ was sent to preach to the poor. Now something really that I, I have not noted till I was really reviewing all this, studying all this a little bit earlier, but that is that one of the things that Jesus actually reported to be a proof that he was the Messiah is that he, unlike many of those in his day, he did go to the poor. The Sadducees, if they were out to recruit for their sect, and again, the church is not a sect, but it was viewed that way in that day, when the Sadducees went out to recruit for their sect, they went out and found people who were like they were. They went out and found people. They were wealthy. They were looking for wealth. If you did not fit in that category, you were not necessarily invited. Though sometimes there are municipal clubs and different things, organizations around communities like this one in Anderson, wherever it might be, where it basically if you're going to be inducted into this municipal club, it has a lot to do with where your bank account lies. Maybe where you work. What type of work you do. There are certain clubs that have more doctors and lawyers in them than they ever would a mill worker. Not to put either one of them up or down. That's the way it is. Now, we're still in the book of Luke. We've looked at Luke 1. We're looked at Luke 4. Go a few more pages over to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Now what's happening here, we're going to read about it, is that John the Baptist, this is Luke's account of this, others mention it, but John the Baptist has become concerned that maybe Jesus was not the Messiah. And so he is really on his deathbed in some senses, and he's very concerned about whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. Now John the Baptizer that we're speaking about here was the same John from John chapter 1 who in verse 29 and yet another place in the same chapter said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. 
So he's already made a profound statement. This is the Lamb, that is, this is the Messiah. Now he wants to know, was I exactly right about that? Notice what it's told him. Verse 19, Luke 7. And John calling unto him two of his disciples, that's Jesus' disciples, sent them, to, or his disciples, sent them to Jesus saying, Art thou he that should come or look we for another? Are you the Messiah or not? That's what John wanted to know. Verse 20. When the men were come unto him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come or look we for another? They were nice. They just repeated what John had said. And in the same hour, he cured many of their infirmities. They caught Jesus working. They caught him right in the thick of things. Through many of their infirmities and plagues and evil spirits, and unto them that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answered. Jesus didn't stop what he was doing necessarily. He let them watch that. Then Jesus answered, watch this, and said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard. Now, I, I don't know how many times, how many times, I have used this passage to write there, and you'll see in your Bible there's either a colon or a semicolon most likely. I come to write there. That's what I needed to mention. That's what I needed to quote. And I say, now what this proves is that in order to know who Jesus is, you have to see and hear him. Now that doesn't mean physical sight for us, obviously. It means see him through the words, through the Bible through which we do see him. But what I was missing by not going across this speed bump, if you want to see it that way, is that the Bible went on to add. Jesus hasn't quit talking yet. Jesus answering said, go the way, tell John this, tell him what you've seen. Then he adds here, what you have seen and heard and how that the blind see and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the, and, um, the deaf hear and the dead are raised. Watch this. The last phrase, I don't know that I've ever paid any attention to. <clears throat> to the poor, the gospel is preached. Now, believe you me, if I had seen Jesus healing the blind, healing the lepers, healing the deaf, and even here raising the dead, that would be a believing moment for me, I know. It should have been. It often, well, I shouldn't really be that boastful. It wasn't for many of them. But we would hope that would be a, a profound moment in the interaction that we've had with the Lord Christ on earth if we were then uh, there then. But the last evidence he gave seemingly had nothing to do with the former mention and that was that he preached the gospel to the poor. You say, why is that? Friends, the Old Testament actually prophesied that. It was a matter of prophecy that Jesus would preach unto the poor. Better than that, it was a matter of proof because they had never met anyone like him. On more than one occasion, when men were in the presence of our Lord and they heard him speak and they heard him preach, they made statements about him and they said he, they spoke about his speech, and they said that he was not as like unto the scribes. He was not like the scribes. Why? Well, the scribes like to pick their audiences. The scribes like to, they would rather go speak, if you will, in the White House than speak in a whitened house outside a graveyard. They'd rather be in one place than the other. 
So a proof, an actual proof that Jesus was who he said he was is in that he was willing to preach to the poor. Now, I know I did a lot, but that was really just to set up what we're about to find out. This is how deep this goes. That ties itself back to verse 1 about having both the compatibility, the compatibility with the man of God, Jesus, and also the consistency with that man's message. He went to the poor. These men were not doing that. So what are the charges? Well, number one, he says, you have despised them. Number two, verse seven, he says, do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called. These are Christians. And he says, when you are a called out one, a Christian, and you do this, you're speaking against God. Blaspheme to speak against now, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30, Jesus made a statement. I'm going to paraphrase it. You can read it, but the statement and the gist of it is this. He who is not with me is against me. Somebody says, well, I'm not exactly doing everything that God wanted me to do, but I'm not, I'm not about to say anything bad about you. You ever seen an irreligious person? I mean by that, they just, they're not that attracted to religion. They're not involved in it or whatever, and I'm using that term even as loosely as I can, religion. But they'll look up and they say, oh, I wouldn't say that in front of God. Or I hope God didn't hear that. Or they'll joke and say, you might better step back before I say this. Well, you're blaspheming the name of God. They're actually against Him because they in that position are not with Him. Now, that carries us right in finally to the next section here that we've touched just a bit, verse 8. He says, If ye fulfill the royal law, according to scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. He's giving them some credit for that. But the conditional statement in front of that was ill. Many of these people in this position had not. He says, But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law of transgressors. Now, the royal law there is seemingly, at least, it's a parallel to something he said earlier. Chapter 2 and verse 12 makes mention of it also. Just drop on down to that, a little bit in the latter at this point. He says, so you speak, so you do, that they will, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. That ties back into chapter 1 where he spoke of the perfect law of liberty. Remember, that was the law that a man should judge himself by. The royal law. Now, I see the phrase the royal law and I think I'll try to overthink it or overstate it. The simple thing of saying is this. It's the law of the king. Now, he wasn't the ruler of Rome, at least earthly, obviously. He wasn't the ruler of any province in which these people may have found themselves. Remember, these are those who are scattered abroad, chapter 1 and verse 1. But in the essence of all of that, he was and still is. Regardless of what man gives him the authority in their minds to do, he is the royal king. And a royal king has a royal law. Now in our day, royalty that we find across the great pond, as we call it, has been deduced to nothing more than a uh, up in a group of people supported by the people to do absolutely nothing. 
Not the case in true royalty and certainly not the case here as concerning Jesus. Now, he says there in this, for if you fulfill, that is you completely do all of the royal law according to the scripture. And then he asks, he makes a statement that I mentioned on the last Lord's Day. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. These were men who carried boxes upon their heads, embedded in their turbans, who contained some old laws, one of which was always this one, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. They understood that. Jesus mentioned this among the greatest of the commandments of the old law. But in thinking about this a little bit more, and I'm making a suggestion. That's my disclaimer. I couldn't prove it. I'm not trying to prove this with Scripture. Just think about this. The society in which we live, which is could be worse perhaps than even they did. I'm not sure. Some places are different than others, certainly. But where we measure ourselves so often based upon material wealth and material gain, this is a problem. Because what happens is, if I look to the world, I look on the television, I look in the magazines and all these things, and especially concerning looks and things for, for women or men for that matter, if I look to those things and I look down uh, the uh, listing of all the monies that are made, the top 100 richest people in the world, I can find any measuring bar to measure myself by, and I can begin to get the idea, I may not want to say it, but that I am not nearly as good as those people. And sometimes people who are hardworking, who are trying to get to that status, that's all that is, that status in life, work so hard and when it's not working out, they begin to think less of themselves. I actually heard a man on one occasion uh, he corrected himself. He didn't. I guess he didn't intend on this, but he met someone out in a in a public setting, and somebody spoke to him. He spoke back. He kind of recognized who they were as being a lawyer in town. And as they met, he said he got his name and all. He said, "What do you do?" And he said, oh, "I'm just a preacher." Well, I wish he hadn't said it that way. He went. He corrected it. But I wonder how many of us, and that would just happen to be what he did in life, his, what he attempted to do, but how many of us will say behind what we do in life or have done in the past, well, I am just a, or were just a, so-and-so. We put ourselves beneath. You say, no, you're saying a lot to say what? When the, what I think about myself is too low, And I'm told to love thy neighbor as thyself. If I don't love myself, I'll never love my neighbor. Some people, what they think about themselves, how they treat their, themselves, sometimes even their own bodies, I would to God they'd never treat me that way. You see people who abuse themselves, through the abuses of alcohol, tobacco, uh, you could go down the gamut of those things, damaging their bodies daily who, to themselves. Every time something's said about them, they say, well, I'm just a bum anyway. I'm, I'm not really fit for anything. I don't deserve anything in life. How in the world are they ever going to love another man? 
if you have to love your neighbor as you love yourself. I think that may be the root of the problem in our society. We see the end of it, that people just don't seem to love each other anymore. Most all of you I know could say, well, I remember back when I was younger, when I was a child, things were this way. We didn't lock our door. We often had a lot of time together with our neighbors. Children played in the yards. I remember that. Remember people sharing meals. Somebody fired up the barbecue. That didn't mean that you couldn't come. You were generally invited. But the symptom is they don't love one another, but maybe it's because they don't love themselves anymore. The bad part about that is, far worse really, is that if you can't love your fellow man, you can't love God. First John tells us that. And so these are those who are committing sin. Now what is that sin? Well, the sin is that they're not really loving their neighbor. Verse 9, he says, For if you have respect to persons, Ye commit sin and are convinced. That word convinced, I, I did some research on that. It would be better translated really to be convicted. You're guilty as charged. And ye are convinced of the law of transgressors. The royal law in place at this time was the law of the New Testament, the law of Christ. The old law was the law of the transgressor. Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 through 15 speaks of having blotting out the handwriting of ordinances which was once against us, it's verse 14, and contrary to us, taking it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. He says, if you find yourself in this position, mistreating, discriminating against other people, you are convinced or convicted of the law of transgressors. You may as well be living under that because it's doing you no other good. Then verse 9. Not only do we see this concern here about their sin in those two, but verse 9 says, but if you have respect to persons, uh, well, I just read verse 9, verse 10. He says, for whatsoever shall, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point. Now, I understand the word point in your translations is probably, your printings, is probably italicized, meaning that word was added to make clearer emphasize sometimes, but often most times just to make more clear the message that's being brought to us by through a verse. But I think the word is important because he says, for whosoever shall keep the whole law, that's the law of transgressions from verse 9, if you kept the whole law of God perfectly and then you offended in one, that really could say one law, But you see, the Jews had divided even the laws of God. Even, and of course, the law was much more than this, don't get me wrong, but even the Ten Commandments, they had taken thou shalt not kill and basically wrote a string of laws that applied that, how to apply it, this and that. Some of that was God-given. Some of that was appropriate. But other parts of that were just things that they had made up. As a matter of fact, they had come up with more than 24 volumes. The Pharisees had 24 volumes of books, thick books, that were set to explain what those Ten Commandments meant according to their opinion. They wrote commentaries, basically, that tried to describe what those laws meant. So he doesn't just say if you miss a law, he says if you just miss one point of that law, 
Just one thing about it. What happens? What's the outcome? He is guilty of all. That is, as if he had committed all. Now, what's been the argument all the way? The argument is that you have been having people come into your assemblies, visiting perhaps. They come in, one with gay clothing, one with vile raiment. You have treated them differently. The whole time you thought you were proud and high and mighty. The whole time you found yourself guilty of nothing. The whole time you've missed that you've been oppressed yourself. You forgot all about that. And now you want to stand and say that you keep the law of God. You're keeping the law of God. You're loving your neighbor as yourself. He said that's not true. And even if it were true, if you've missed anything at all, you've missed it all. Now that doesn't have anything to do with the grace of God. That doesn't have anything to do with the fact that sometimes it's possible at least that we sin and we, we for a period of time at least we're ignorant to that sin and it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that you and I are going to one day pass from this life or the Lord should return and we're going to be judged upon what we have done in our own body, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. But it does say that what the law contains is what we're required to do. There's a standard. There's something that God is making his choice, verse 5, based upon, and that's basically it, the law, the whole law. Now somebody says, well, I like to read the gospel accounts because they contain the words of Jesus. Well, that, that's true. Somebody would even say, well, my Bible has read in print. That's really the important words. Take out the word really, and those words are important. They're no more or less important, however, than what even the apostles gave. You say, how is that? I won't go into all of this, but John, John recorded the words of Jesus as to say that he spake nothing save the Father would give it to him. That's the same position Paul was in. That's the same position Peter would be in, John would be in, any of the apostles were in, any of the men who penned words on behalf of God by inspiration in the New Testament. Same position. What God says, I do. God doesn't say it, I don't do it. And here's the thing. We find ourselves, either have or maybe do, find ourselves sometimes having not kept the law of God. Maybe it's the part of the law which will just call upon us to be obedient. Maybe it's the case that some are not obedient to God. They've never obeyed Christ. And we understand that means to hear God's word. Believe it. That's lean on it. Rely on it. Repenting of their sins. Confessing his name. Being baptized. Some people fail to keep that law. Those are law as any other. What do they do? Well, if they want to keep the whole law... They've got to keep the whole law or else be guilty of all. How many people have you known that said, well, I've confessed the name of Jesus. They hadn't kept the whole law. Well, I think we ought to confess the name of Jesus, but we can't keep on sinning. We need to repent. They hadn't kept the whole law. Well, I believe the words of God. They hadn't kept the law. Now, the whole law in just that instance concerning salvation would be to be baptized also. And not for an outward showing of an inward faith, but for the remission of sins. Acts 
1 Peter 3.21, Mark 16.16, 16, any other passage that could apply. Acts 8, verse 36. Acts 10, verse 36 through 40. All of that. But then it comes down more like to people like us, the Wednesday night crowd. We say, well, I've served God faithfully. I, I, I obeyed the gospel some years ago, maybe decades. I served God faithfully. Question then at hand is to review every day, not, not once a month or once a year or when it's mentioned, but do I keep the whole law? When it comes to respect to persons, do I keep the whole law? When it comes to the way that I live, do I keep the whole law? And you can go on with a litany of things. Like one lady said on one occasion, she reported a number of times, I forget how many years, 50 or 60 years maybe, she said she had read her Bible through, daily Bible reading program. Somebody asked her, said, why have you done that? You, you ought to know that Bible frontward and backward by now. She said, well, I like to think that I do, but in case I miss something, I need to know about it. The whole law concerning us, the New Testament. If you're here tonight and you're a child of God's and for whatever reason you hadn't kept the whole law, what a terrifying thought to be guilty before God of all as if you've never even obeyed. Terrible thing that can be fixed if we restored unto him through prayer and repentance. Won't you do that while we sing this invitation song?